is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. My name is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Now, coming up shortly is the concluding part of the rather uncreatively titled Crash Again. But first, we dive into the murky depths of the listener's telephone-in quiz. Can you guess what it is that I'm describing? Yes, despite very limited success, the powers that be have decided to forge onwards, and I am forced to comply. So how it works is thus. Oh, well, another keen listener. Well, let's hope they're a little more on the ball than last week's caller. Ahoy, hoy. This is Albion Radiophonic Corporation. Theodore speaking. Good day to you, listener. Are you ready to play? Can you guess what it is that I'm describing? Hello. Hello. It is I, Captain Frogulus Bottom Barnacles, calling using the vicar's newfangled telephone that he had installed only last Thursday. Or was it on Tuesday? It's hard to say when you've been at sea as long as I have. Oh, right. Well, thank you for the detailed introduction. Are you ready to play the game? You can win three shillings. Three shillings? That's more gold than I have seen in all my years at sea. Which number some three score and twelve? Or maybe twelve score and three. I'm not really sure. I've been at sea a very, very long time. And I never win a school. Uh, Splendid. Um, um, Then you'll be keen to win, then, I'm sure. Right, well, for three shillings, here is your first clue. Wouldn't I be... You'll find me on the sea. Arrrr! Guessing, is it? A game of guessing? Well, I'm very good at guessing. In all my years at sea, I've guessed at many things. Almost too many to recall to mind. Although a few of my guesses still haunt me at night, like a leaky trousers. Oh, those bleak, dark, stormy nights at sea. When the timbers creak and the wails of the undead chain to old Davy Smith's locker rattle the hangings of my suspended cauldron. Oh, right, yes. Well, you're suddenly not short of a word or two. So, do you have a guess for me? Uh, it is rather easy this week, I feel. Arrrr. Might it be the mighty kraken that rises up from the deep on every other Shrove Tuesday who goes by the name of Kevin the Kraken and once took my sister and Fetamine Bottom Barnacles on a murky tour of the ocean floor before swallowing her all. Unpalatable she was, 
and he did spit her out henceforth onto the island of Trout, where I believe she still lies. Although I haven't heard from her for a while. Um, no, not really. Um, perhaps uh, try and think of something a little more mundane. I I'm sensing you're trying too hard. Uh, anyway, here is your second clue for one shilling and threepence. Sails I have, or engines steamy, upon the waves I bob, bob, bobby. Oh, Mabel, you've really outdone yourself on the metric scale of utter nonsense this week. Arr! Arr! Be it the siren of Sirencester, who dwelt for eons in the craggy island of rotten herring's guts betwixt the beacon of the eternal elephant. And the twin mountains of the fabled giant, Algernon the Awkward. I remember well, she came forth one Monday afternoon after Michaelmas. Oh, were it Yonkapur, and took my brother Weetabix Bottom Barnacles as her lawful wedded husband. Before cheating on him cruelly with a semi-sentient dolphin of unspecified origin. Might have been Peru. Come to think of it, I haven't heard from him in a while either. But then the postal system isn't what it used to be. Um, right. Uh, now, whilst this is fascinating, I'm afraid that really isn't the right answer. Nor anything close to it. Oh, oh well, one more chance. Here is your final clue for eightpence halfpenny. Sometimes espied in a moat, my name doth rhyme with groat. Arrgh! Is it a goat? Don't even go there! Arrgh! I was gonna say a goblin! With a beard the length of eight average-sized men kneeling on a windy bank holiday. I knew such a goblin. He arrived one Saturday, late afternoon. The rumour of the second coming of Abraham the Unwanted was a distant memory. He ate my dog, Grumblefish, and also my hamster, Toasted Cheese. And he was about to eat my other sister, Specification Bottom Barnacles the Third, when she hit him with the anchor chain from my second best schooner. And he thought better of it. Instead, they sparked up a rare friendship. The sort that is only ever spoken of in the dark of a sailor's tavern. On a windy Wednesday morning. When all the other patrons have left worse for drink. And they embarked on a tour of the six seas of Salsify. From which they never returned. Come to think of it, I haven't heard from her in ages. What a surprise. Well, unfortunately, that isn't the right answer. Do you want one final try? Is it a goat? Off. Well, there's no need for that. I only rang to give you the shipping forecast anyway. Oh, well, that explains a lot. Do I dare ask, what is the forecast? Arrgh. Here. Be the shipping forecast. Many a year as I've been at sea, are. Nope. Uh, for those that care about such things, the answer was a boat.
Mabel, get my agent on the phone. And now on the light programme, it's time for Slumber Time Stories. And this week we conclude the story from Tales of New Albion, Volume 1, that we started last week. Here it is. presents part two of Crash Again by Darren Callum. looking up with the most fearful expression from his control panel. What, what's going on? Why on earth is the train moving? Well, I was trying to tell you. Allay in Gaulish means, well, go, muttered Ellen, moving to the hatch and looking around frantically for some way to open it. Oh, no, she added. What now? wailed Lushthorpe. Uh, is there any way to open the hatch from within? It seems rather lacking in any form of, um, handle. She gave it another look over just to make sure, but her total tally of portal-opening lever-type thingies was adding up to exactly none. Well now, uh, one doesn't want to be opening that by mistake during the flight now, does one? Chided Lushthorpe, although it was dawning him that it might have not been such a bad idea to include a door handle after all. Before he could add anything else, a mighty roar and a violent rattle shook the rocket, and it became obvious to one and all that they were picking up speed at an alarming rate. Was that the... started Fitch, but Lushel cut him off. The, the rocket motor's firing up. Yes, I, I rather think it was. So does that mean... started Fitch again, but once more he was curtailed. We are launching, whether we like it or not stated Lushthorpe, glancing urgently around the room in all directions. Uh, what are you looking for, exactly? asked Ellen, keen to help, as always. Uh, the Air Commodore? Uh, his love boat, not amongst our number? Uh, I could have sworn I saw him. No, he's bloody having lunch, growled Fitch. Him too? Uh, well, who's going to fly the bally thing, then? wailed Lushthorpe as everyone looked at everyone else with desperation. Finally, all eyes alighted on Ellen. Uh, who? Me? She gulped. Well, I'm game to give it a try if you like, offered Ellen. Uh, uh, how hard can it be? All stared at her wide-eyed, but before anyone could add anything further, Mrs Tickle suddenly leapt from Fitch's arms and headed towards the rack of spacesuits. The whole rocket shook again, and it was clear that there was no going back now. Spacesuits, everyone, now, commanded Fitch, following the space cat's lead, and no one seemed inclined to contradict him. 
Barely had the motley crew hauled on misfitting and ramshackle spacesuits when there came a number of loud popping sounds from outside the rocket. What now? cried Carshalton, who had found it impossible to get her telescope-festooned hands into the suit and had, very reluctantly, been forced to remove them. Oh, connection bolts released, explained Lushthorpe. We are no longer attached to the train. We must get to the bridge and fire the lift boosters, or all will be lost. Quite what was to be gained by this, considering there were only five of them aboard, no one had the heart to ask. But clamber up ladders and through hatches they all went, until they arrived, sweaty and out of breath, on the bridge. This was a huge steel and glass bullet head at the very pinnacle of the rocket. To the front, they could see the great eastern Gaulish plains stretching out before them, inscribed by the three parallel tracks of the TTCE, and, somewhat more alarmingly, a range of snow-peaked mountains advancing towards them rapidly. Smoke and steam were pouring up from the three steam locomotives, and it was clear they were hurtling forward at incredible speed, the like of which none of them had ever experienced before. Looks like Madame Supervisor is really allaying it now, muttered Ellen, hauling herself into the pilot's seat and strapping herself in. Lushthorpe, Carshalton and Fitch did likewise in seats arranged behind her in the cabin. No, no time to lose, so now we all secured? yelled Lushthorpe over the increasing din. And when all the cries were in the affirmative, he hit a large red button next to his chair with a gloved hand. Nothing additional seemed to happen at this point, so Lushthorpe hit it again. Still nothing. Finally, Lushthorpe batted it like a mad toddler with the spanner he had brought from the cabin, and this time something did happen. With an incredible roar, the main engine of the rocket screamed into life, and the most incredible G-forces slammed them into their seats as the whole contraption began to lift away from the train. Ellen pulled frantically and grimly at the controls, and despite the great shaking and whining of metal from all around, the rocket appeared to be actually ascending as intended. The acceleration was relentless, making it hard for any of them to move or even talk. Although for some reason known only to herself, Carshalton offered a cryptic, there, let's hit the nail on the bullet, through rattling teeth. As they continued to rush skywards, the light outside the cabin began to change, the blue of the afternoon sky being replaced with ever-darkening tones. How are we doing? yelled back Ellen as she continued to grip the controls like grim death. Yeah, fairly splendid, thank you, came the juddering reply from Lushthorpe as an urgent pinging noise began to emanate from an instrument panel near the astronomer Carl Shulton. What the dickety boost does that mean? She inquired, peering at the panel through yet another telescope she had acquired from somewhere. Ah, uh, that means we need to release the rocket stage, pronounced Lushthorpe, who began to look all around him with increasing levels of desperation. Lost something, growled Fitch. Uh, well, uh, there should be a second stage release button here, uh, somewhere. His voice tailed off as the pinging continued to, well, ping, ever more urgently. Uh, perhaps they haven't installed that yet. Oh, for heaven's sake, muttered Fitch. Is there another way to release the rocket stage? Well, well there is probably a manual release uh, somewhere. Uh, big red lever, uh, hard to miss. 
Before Lushthorpe could even finish his sentence, Fitch had undone his restraints and was, with a huge sigh, working with the G-forces to head back out of the cabin. Big red lever, you say? He growled as he departed. Well, probably, you know, if they got around to... But Fitch didn't hear him as he moved jerkily from handhold to handhold, hauling himself back towards the rear of the rocket. The jolting, rattling clamour from all around him was almost overpowering. But somehow he put one step for a man, one giant step for some other folk, after another, and hauled himself back along the body of the monster, looking for a big red lever. Finally, just as he thought he could bear it no longer, he saw one, suitably red, suitably big, set in a brass panel at the very back of the final room. This had better be it, he wheezed as with all his might he fought the G-forces to fall as close as he could to the lever and pull it, only for it to come clean off the wall in his hand. Oh, bugger, he muttered. But there seemed little choice but to discard the lever and work his way slowly and with incredible difficulty back to the cabin. Well? inquired Lushthorpe as he finally got his head back through the cabin door. Slight problem, he growled. Seems someone forgot to install the lever. Came off in me hand. Oh, muttered Lushthorpe, sounding extremely deflated. I don't want to interrupt, started Ellen, trying to sound as polite as she could. But I I'm struggling a wee bit, and there are some rather large mountains coming up. Is there any way we can, uh, you know, get off? Um, well, I I I'm not really sure began Lushthorpe, sounding rather resigned to crashing at this point. What about the catapult? interjected Carl Shulton. Wouldn't that fire us to flippity and deploy the shooty power what's it? Catapult? growled Fitch, sounding unconvinced. Is there a button for that? Lushthorpe looked all around, but was forced to concede that he certainly couldn't see one. Uh, um, uh, he began, but Fitch was having none of it. Where's this effing catapult? He shouted over the din. By this point, it was all Lushthorpe could do to point forlornly at a trapdoor in the floor. Right, here we go, muttered Fitch, and he hauled the cover off and leaned himself over to look into the hole thus opened. Uh, uh, I can see the elastic, uh, but how do I release it? Shouted Fitch over the din of the rocket. P pull the ratchet down, yelled Lushthorpe by return without really thinking through the consequences. And so, Fitch reached with all his might and pulled the pin, which immediately fired the catapult, throwing him like a raggedy doll against the cold, hard, unyielding cabin wall. He was unconscious before he could even curse the engineer that had failed to install both the second-stage release lever and the catapult firing button, before buggering off for Brian Burgundy. And believe me, dear reader, he had a really good curse in mind. It was a little while later that, having somehow, against all the odds, survived the premature ejection of the cabin and the, better late than not at all, deployment of the retardation parachutes, which halted their fall while still knocking them all unconscious, the Delenhall came to, hauled herself out of her seat and began to look for the others. As smoke and the distant crackle of fire filled the cabin, she shook a delirious Lushthorpe into consciousness, and with Carl Shulton's help began to drag him from the twisted metal of the rocket 
into the rocky landscape outside. Fitch was harder to find, but eventually, with help from Mrs Tickle's keener nose, they found him buried in angular shards of metal. His suit pierced in multiple locations, and his right arm hanging limply from his suit. All hands and paws were required to pull his unconscious frame clear and lay him gingerly into a hastily constructed bed made of torn parachute silk. With care, they removed his suit to prevent him overheating, and as they hauled it off, Ellen was surprised to find that behind one of the bigger gashes in the suit was a now-pierced and creased children's picture book. She pulled it out carefully, since it seemed that Fitch obviously treasured it greatly. Lushthorpe, who had been in quite a daze and muttering about dreams and déjà vu, slumped down beside her as she began to thumb idly through the book. This book may have saved his life, she mumbled to herself, tracing the hole where the metal had been embedded, aware that she could possibly hear an ornithopter or other aircraft in the distance. A rescue party, perhaps. Look how it was nearly pierced through. She showed the page to Sir Grenville, who seemed deep in thought and not keen to indulge in her book club discussion just yet. However, Ellen's eyes began to widen as she realised she was staring at something very familiar. Labelled, extremely cryptically, Ear Moo Bee, the double-page drawing featured a circle of gantries, towers and other constructions around a large circular floor of exotic-looking material. The setting was the desert somewhere, and she gave a little gasp as she realised where she'd seen this edifice before. No, oh, we'll never get to the moon now, moaned Sir Lushthorpe with near-complete despondency, gazing forlornly at the twisted scrap metal of the once magnificent rocket. So grief-stricken was he that he didn't notice either the first of the rescue party hurrying towards them, nor Ellen's whispered reply gazing at the pages of Fitch's book. Actually, I think I might know a way. But first, we might need to find some pirates in the desert. To be continued. Uh, well now, that's left things rather open-ended. Uh, I wonder if there'll be a crash again again coming up in the schedule. Uh, what's that, Mabel? There is. Uh. Well, why am I not surprised? Oh, uh, well, that's all we have time for. So all that's left for me to do is to say, Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices and characters are created by and copyright to Darren Callow, with the exception of Captain Frogulus Bottom Barnacles, who is played by Frog Morris Esquire. All music is by Charlotte Zavaka. Really, Mabel, what preposterous names did you make these up yourself? I mean, Darren Callow? Who in all of New Albion would have such a name as Darren? <laughs> Tales of New Albion is available to buy online from Bandcamp and Amazon. 
where the album is also available. And they really do have some outstanding cover artwork, worth the price alone, I must say. Don't know much about the inside, though. For all information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production for Albion Radiophonic Corporation. Put that virus to flippity and deploy the charity beauty. <laughs>